It's a joy to be here with you this evening to be able to open God's Word. And uh, to that end, if you would please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 19. And we'll be looking at Proverbs chapter 19, verses 24 through chapter 20, verse 1. So we'll go from 24 to just one verse into chapter 20. So Proverbs chapter 19, as we continue our study of the book of Proverbs, let's uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24. Hear now the word of God. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. A worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would open our hearts and the eyes of our faith that you would give us ears to hear, that we would hear you speaking within these pages, that you would uh, make us not only hear your word, but to act upon it, O Lord, that we would not be merely hearers, but doers of your word, that you would give unto us the very power by which you created the heavens and the earth through Christ and the Spirit, that you would transform our lives, further conforming us to the image of your Son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was recently watching a documentary uh, about climbing Mount Everest, which of course is the world's tallest mountain, uh, topping off at 29,029 feet. The mountain has uh, beckoned explorers and climbers ever since Sir Edmund Hillary's first ascent in May 29th of 1953. And since then, more than 4,000 climbers have summited the peak. But at the same time, Everest has claimed the lives of more than 300 since 1922. And the sad reality is, is that Mount Everest at near the peak in what they call the death zone is one of the world's largest open graveyards. Because when you're summiting the peak, you literally, and this is no exaggeration, you literally at times have to step over those who have died, who have been left there at the top of the peak. Well, the reason is, is because if you die on Everest, it's next to impossible to be able to recover your remains because of the extreme conditions. In fact, in this documentary, it was noting how uh, two climbers died, and so they paid two climbers $55,000 to recover the remains, and those two climbers died. And so most of those who die have to be left on the mountain, and they're either buried in the snow or perhaps some of them lie undisturbed in the very positions where they died. And while many climbers successfully summit uh, Everest, 
Others do not heed the warning. Think about the irony of that, that as you're trying to summit and you're stepping over the body of somebody who died trying to summit, you would think wisdom would tell you, maybe I should turn around. This might not be the best thing for me to do. And if they had heeded the warning and had turned around, maybe they themselves would not have eventually died. You know, for the fallen, what would have happened if they saw the dead that they were stepping over and thought, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to go back? Well, I think that this is the very question that Solomon substantively poses to us in the passage as he rehearses the consequences of sin. He rehearses the judgment that is to fall upon fools, which naturally poses the question, are we going to heed the warning? Or, as we are on the way, climbing the mount of sin and foolishness, as we step into the thin air of unrighteousness, uh, will we simply step over those who God has judged and will we ignore them and continue up the mountain to our peril? That's the question that we have to ask. And that's the question that I think Solomon is ultimately posing to us is, will we heed the warnings? Uh, Will we heed the condemnation that falls upon the fool? Or will we ignore it? And will we continue to plunge into our sin? And so to that end, what we want to do is we want to look at this evening. uh, We want to look at the sluggard. We want to look at the savage. And we want to look at the scoffer. And just for the record, I'm extremely proud this week of my alliteration. I feel like I can't pull it off often, but this week I was super excited. The sluggard, the savage, and the scoffer. So let's first take consideration of the sluggard. Solomon provides us with the first warning by showing us the slothful person. He says in verse 24 of chapter 19, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, many meals were consumed by using your hands. You know, in our own context, you might eat uh, chicken uh, or you might eat, say, corn on the cob or something with your hand. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, you might take a piece of bread and you might dip it in the bowl and then bring some of the food back to you. Well, in this case, Solomon says with the sluggard, the sluggard is so slothful, he's so lazy that as he buries his hand in the bowl, he is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. He is too lazy even to feed himself. Now, once again, we have to remember the nature of sloth. We talked about this last week. Sloth is not simply laziness, though it certainly involves laziness, rather sloth, first and foremost, is a laziness, a sluggishness uh, towards the things of God, towards the things of God. It's an indolence towards God that leads to a physical sloth. In other words, the physical sloth is ultimately only a symptom of the spiritual problem of a laziness towards the things that God commands us and wants of us. You could put it this way, an inattention to the things of heaven leads to a negligence to the things on earth. 
And we can say that Christ, for example, illustrates the very nature of sloth in his parable of the talents. A wealthy man entrusted three servants with some of his wealth. To one servant he gave five talents, to another servant he gave two talents, and to one servant he gave one solitary talent. The servants with five and two talents, they were diligent. They were not slothful. They earned more. But we know, of course, the story that the, the, one, uh, the one servant with the one talent buried his in the earth. And what's interesting here is what the master has to say in his judgment. First, to the diligent servants, he says in Matthew 25, 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But what does he say to the servant who buried his talent? Remember our definition of sloth. It is a laziness towards the things of God. And in this case, the, 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 the servant is, is one who is ultimately serving God in this, in this parable. Matthew 25, verse 26, But his master answered to him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and that at my coming I should have it received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to whom, I'm sorry, for to everyone who has will, uh, will more be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that he calls the servant who buried the talent. In other words, the, the servant buried the talent out of fear, but notice how Christ characterizes this servant as being wicked and slothful. He was lazy towards the commands of his master. So this is the nature of the sluggard. And as you see the sluggard who is incapable of pulling his own hand out of the dish to feed himself, do you look past the symptom, which is physical sloth, and do you recognize the spiritual condition? a sluggishness and a slothfulness towards the things of God. Which this poses the question, are, are we diligent towards the things of Christ? You know, Christ has awakened us from the sleep of death. Will we therefore seek Christ by every single possible means? What does Paul say in, in Ephesians 6.18? Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What does Peter say in 2 Peter 1.10? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You know, you've heard the saying, a rolling stone gathers no moss. That, there's a sense in which that should describe the Christian who is never slothful towards the things of God. But if we have been awakened, if we have been awakened from the sleep of death and we have been given life, then it behooves us to use the grace and the life that Christ has given us to seek him, to serve him, and to ask him, how might I be used of Christ to his glory? Now, at the same time, 
if we're pursuing Christ, ultimately what this means, if we seek the warning of the sluggard, then it means that we will pray that Christ will keep us on the path of righteousness, on the path of wisdom. Solomon says in verse 25, strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. Notice how he contrasts the fool with the wise. Sometimes if you strike a fool in punishment, he's going to learn wisdom. He'll correct his ways. Sometimes strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Now at the same time, note the contrast with the wise. Notice you strike the scoffer, but you merely have to reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. In other words, you strike the fool, you merely have to speak to the wise person. You know, one of the things I regularly pray for is I, I regularly pray that God would use whatever means are necessary to keep me on the path of righteousness. And I even say it with these very words, O oh Lord, if necessary, hit me over the back of the head with a two by four. Not literally, but, you know, figuratively. And I can say figuratively, I've got a number of welts on the back of my head, you know, welts that I've accumulated over the years, welts that I think, oh, Lord, I I wish it didn't take that, but I'm glad that you nevertheless struck me so that I would recognize what it is that I have to do, where it is that I have to go, so that I would stay on the path of righteousness. But at the same time, almost immediately after saying, oh, Lord, by whatever means necessary, even if it's a a proverbial two by four, I say, please help me to hear the still quiet whisper of your voice in your word, that I would be so attentive to your will that it would just be the whisper, don't go there, that would grab my attention. That would grab my attention. How different would Pharaoh's life had been if he heeded God's initial words through Moses and that he would have let Israel go? Not only, not only did God strike Pharaoh and the Egyptians many times with ten plagues, but he eventually struck him with the blow of death and judgment against him and his army. And so we should ask our questions, keeping that that, that ascent to Everest in mind, the open graveyard, as we walk on the path of foolishness, and as we see the dead bodies of those who have been judged, will we heed the warning? Will we listen to the whisper of God's voice? And will we turn back to the path of righteousness? Or will we plunge forward into the thin air of sin and foolishness? One of the things that they say about ascending Everest and the reason that so many people die is that the air is so thin that it can hamper your ability to think well. You become basically belligerent and you become foolish. Isn't that the nature of sin? We get higher up the mountain of sin so much so that we lack the life giving oxygen of righteousness and holiness of God's grace that we become belligerent in our ways. It's only God's grace in Christ that can give us the eyes to see our foolishness, the foolishness of our ways, and to quiet our hearts so that we would heed the whisper of God's voice that says, turn away, don't be like the sluggard, don't be like the fool, Just listen to my voice. Secondly, 
What about the savage? The savage. Well, the savage child, we can say, is another class of fool that falls under God's judgment. In verse 26, we see that Solomon says, He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. You know, in the ancient world, a child could do tremendous harm to a family if he in some way incapacitated his father. His father essentially was the source of the family's financial well-being. If he was ill or if he died, then the family could be left absolutely penniless. Think, for example, of the dire circumstances that Ruth and Naomi faced when they had no husbands, they had no sons, they were on their own, essentially left to beg. Humanly speaking, they had little hope were it not for the providential care of God who gave them uh, uh, the, uh, the assistance and the kindness of Boaz. So Solomon here says the one who commits father, uh, I'm sorry, the one who commits violence against his father also adversely affects his mother. And this is why a savage child, one who is violent against his father and incapacitates him, harms him or kills him, is somebody who brings shame, reproach, and judgment upon himself. Deuteronomy 10.18, he who does violence to his father and chases away uh, his mother. Oh, no, sorry. In Deuteronomy 10.18, it speaks of the fact that one who does violence against his father and mother is one ultimately who deserves judgment. One who deserves judgment. So here we see the fool lying on the path under God's judgment. What remedy does Solomon provide in verse 27? Notice this. He says, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Notice once again, you know, this is the second time that he's, he's encouraging the wise to listen. You strike the fool, but the wise person heeds reproach or reproval. Uh, correction. Here you see the violent son wreaking havoc upon his family. How can you avoid this? Don't cease to hear instruction. Because if you cease to hear instruction, my son, you're going to stray from the words of knowledge. If you stop listening to the wisdom of God, to good counsel, then you're going to stray from the path of righteousness. I've heard a contemporary proverb where one best-selling author says, success is never owned, it is rented, and the rent is due every day. So true. But I think we can adapt it and adapt that observation to wisdom and holiness, and we can say wisdom is never owned, it comes solely from Christ, and we must seek it from him every single moment of the day. I think so often it's the case that we think that the more progress that we make in holiness and righteousness, it means that sin is way over there and we can walk and we can make progress and we can get far, far, far away from it. And what we don't realize is that sin is always on our heels because we carry it within our hearts. So wisdom is never owned but comes from Christ. We have to seek it from him every moment of every day. This is, I think, the ultimate irony here in the book of, of Proverbs is that Solomon did not heed his own counsel. 
What does 1 Kings 11, chapter 11, verses 4 and 9 say? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. This is counsel that Solomon should have heeded. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you'll stray from the words of knowledge. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Solomon ceased to hear instruction and strayed from the words of knowledge. By contrast, notice Christ, who is wisdom incarnate, who did not stray, he did not cease to hear his words, but he hungered and he thirsted after his Father's will. In his temptation in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, 4, we read of this as he responds to Satan. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Granted, the metaphor changes in that Solomon speaks of listening to the word of God. And here Jesus speaks of eating and consuming the word of God, but the idea is the same, is that Christ was listening to the whisper of his father's voice, and he was saying, here I am, I will do it. Do we hunger and thirst for the word of God? Or do we wander from his table and do we seek food elsewhere? We have to pray. We have to pray that Christ would give us a hunger and a desire for his word and that We would continually come to his table to feast upon him, the manna from heaven. In so doing, my hope and prayer, and it should be for us all, is that if we find ourselves ascending the mountain of sin, that we would see and look at the fallen fools, those who have ceased to heed the knowledge of God, those who have committed violence, We would see the judgment of God that is to fall upon them and that has already fallen upon them yet. And that we would turn around and we would descend the mountain and that we would seek the path of wisdom and righteousness by the grace of God in Christ. So we've looked at the sluggard, the savage, and then last but not least, we want to give consideration to the scoffer. Solomon shows us what happens to this one in verses 28 and 29. A worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Condemnation is ready for scoffers, and beating for the backs of fools. Fools have no concern for justice, and so therefore they lie, they cheat, they steal, so that they can get what they want. Rather than feeding Christ, feeding from Christ, the manna from heaven, they feed upon sin. And here's where that, uh, you know, computer programming idea comes from, or at least we could say that it applies here. I remember I was a computer science major for all of one quarter in college. My first programming class just was miserable for me. I couldn't, couldn't take it. I, I guess it would be punny if I said I couldn't hack it. Okay, just was just terrible. I remember staring at one computer program for hours upon hours, and I could not figure out why it wouldn't work. And then finally, after three or four hours, I figured it was one missing comma. And I thought, this is not for me. But that, 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 that one lesson that I learned 
or one of the few lessons that I learned from my computer science major days, it was the principle of garbage in, garbage out. In other words, I did not put in the right programming to make sure that this small program would work. It was off by one comma, and the whole program wouldn't work because of one comma. Garbage in, garbage out. You don't put in the right material, you get the wrong material on the other side, or you get nothing. Consume righteousness and wisdom, good food in, you're going to be wise. You're going to see the fruit of holiness. You're going to see the fruit of good works, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You consume sin, you consume foolishness, and you're going to be foolish. You're going to be sinful. And in this case, if you mock at justice, then it's because you're consuming injustice. And if you consume injustice, then you are going to be consuming sin, devouring iniquity. And what happens to the one who devours iniquity? But you receive condemnation. In fact, the term here used for condemnation occurs 16 different times in the Old Testament. And it's always used for God's judgment against the wicked. Do you remember God's judgment and condemnation against the Egyptians? Exodus 6, 6, say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and uh, I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Even in his life, even in this life, we can say, God sends his judgment upon the wicked. Ezekiel 14, 21, the prophet describes present activity of God, not just something reserved for the final judgment, but that God can manifest his judgment and condemnation in the present. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it, man and beast. You know, the Apostle Paul makes this very clear in the first chapter of Romans that the wrath of God is being un, uh, revealed against all unrighteousness and sin in the present, and that it's manifest in terms of unnatural relations between women and women, men and men. This is a form of God's judgment. Paul is very clear. So God's judgment against fools in the presence, of course, culminates in the eternal condemnation of the wicked at the final judgment. And so Solomon here showcases how fools, how fools can take, therefore, God's good gifts and abuse them. He says in chapter 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You know, I think at one level, what he's saying here is he's continuing the theme that the worthless witness who devours iniquity and sin, condemnation will be visited upon you. Likewise, if you consume wine, if you become drunk with wine, you're going to be a brawler. You're going to have black and blue marks. You're going to get beat up for your 
misuse of God's good gifts. But what we want to recognize here is that Solomon is not condemning the consumption of wine. Rather, he's showing what the fool does with it. You know, uh, Psalm 104, verse 15, God sends wine to gladden the heart of man. So in other words, just as Jesus at the wedding of Cana in Galilee miraculously provided wine for guests and Melchizedek gave Abraham wine, wine can be a good blessing from God. But nevertheless, there are cases when people abuse it, such as when Noah abused wine. Or in this case, as Solomon says here of the fool, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Do you see the drunkard? You know, I I do not remember in my childhood when precisely this occurred, but it was, I think it was sometime when I was about eight or nine years old, and I can remember uh, looking outside the car window as we drove by one street, and there was a drunk. And I could see him where he was just having the greatest difficulty lifting up his leg and he couldn't get up the curb. I feel like I forget so many things in life, but there are certain memories that I just have etched there. And that's one that I can distinctly remember. I want to I, I say in the light of what Solomon says here in Proverbs is, you could say that that's a form of mockery where, where God says, okay, I've given you over to your sin. You want to become drunk, go ahead, go get drunk. And now look, you can't even pick up your leg high enough to get up the curb. That's obviously foolishness. It's sinful. It's unwise. But conversely, do you notice how Paul takes up this very theme of wine and the abuse of it, and he turns it in the opposite direction? He says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, if you want to get filled up with something, fill up with the Spirit. Fill up with the Spirit, not with wine. So here, you can, it's almost as if Solomon is, is speaking the same message in the Old Testament, and he is showing here in the book of Proverbs the foolishness of drunkenness, and he's saying to the wise Christian, beware. And then Paul takes that very same idea in Ephesians, and he says, be wise, don't be unwise, don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit if there's something that you want to fill up on. So as we wander off the path, or if we wander off the path, and if we begin to make the ascent into the thin air of sin and foolishness, are we simply going to step over the drunken fools who have fallen by the way? Or do we heed the warning, turn around, and go back to the path of wisdom and righteousness? The reason that so many climbers die on Mount Everest is because the peak rests at the cruising altitude for 747s. And when climbers cross 26,000 feet, they enter what's called the death zone. And it's not called this for no reason. At 26,000 feet, the oxygen is so sparse, literally, your body's cells begin to die. If you're not on oxygen, 
and you're out there trying to breathe, you literally begin to die. That's why it's called you cross into the death zone. Cross into the death zone. That's why so many uh, climbers experience heart attacks, strokes, or even severe altitude sickness. There's an insufficient amount of oxygen at that altitude. I think we can say the same principles apply to wisdom and foolishness. The further away we wander from Christ and try to ascend the mountain of sin and foolishness, the further we are away from the source of life, from the wisdom and holiness and the grace of God in Christ. So are we going to heed the warnings that we see when we look at the judgment that, has, uh, that, that, that the fools have fallen under? Are we going to look at Solomon's own fall into foolishness? And will we therefore turn away and go back to God or will we merely step over him as we continue our ascent? Our prayers should be that, we would, that God would keep us close, close to Christ and that he would never let us go. You know, one of the things that uh, I heard Pastor Strain say this morning is, and, and, and it brought back to mind the difference between the temptations of Judas and Peter. Christ said that both of them would betray Christ. He says, both of you will betray me. He doesn't say it in those words. But what makes the difference between Judas and Peter is that Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you. And that's, that's what we need to pray for, that you, O Christ, would pray for us, that you would intercede for us so that we wouldn't wander off the path, that he would never let us go. But at the same time, we need to pray for humility, that we would listen to the still, quiet whisper of Christ's voice in Scripture to direct us and to keep us always on the path of righteousness, all to his glory. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have given unto us your wisdom in Christ through the word and through the spirit. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use every means necessary to keep us on that path, even if it means striking us with that proverbial two-by-four. At the same time, O Lord, we pray that it would not come to that, but rather we would heed the warnings of your word, that we would tremble at the threatenings of your word, as it says in our own confession, but at the same time that we would seek shelter in the promises of the gospel, and that with the still quiet voice of your word, of Christ's word by the Spirit, that we would heed your instruction, that we would repent of our sin, that we would stay close to you, never trying to go wander off on our own, trying to climb the heights of pride and arrogance and sin, thinking that somehow we can survive apart from you. Oh, Father, keep us close, keep us humble, and we rejoice, O oh Lord, in the knowledge that through your Son who intercedes for us and who prays for us, we know that you will never let us go. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.